Hey, Catherine. Hey, I'm really, really tired today, and I feel like I need a nap immediately. Oh, you want to sleep this one out? <laughs> yeah, okay. I may have to start being asleep while we do these, uh, if that's all right. Um, yeah. Okay, that'd be fine. Well, no, I actually enjoy talking to you, so please don't go to sleep. Um, we should do some updates, some news updates. Yes. What's happening? Well, the Senate passed a deal. $2 trillion. Yeah, this is what we were talking to Derek about yesterday, is there is some help coming from the government, and we're going to have to, I mean, it still needs to pass the House, and um, we're going to need to unpack what's really in there, but it certainly seems like a good sign, Right. Um, yeah, it, it does. It's based on the way that we are practicing shutdowns and distancing right now. It will have to happen again and again and again. And I don't know if there'll be the political will or money to make that happen. But for now, it is good. Yep. So we'll talk about that more. We'll talk about the finances of all that more. But that's what's happening right now, right? Two tr- the biggest mm-hmm. aid package ever. And bipartisan mm-hmm. stuff. And they're up in the middle of the night, which is good. So... It's hard for you to complain about being tired. I don't mean to complain about anything at all. No, no, no. We're fine. not concerned. We're not policing of complaints around here, right? Every Everyone's complaint is valid, at least. Sure. I'm not saying I want to hear it. Um, <laughs> things just continue to really heat up in New York and uh, everywhere. So yeah. this is one, one of the things I've been trying to figure out is I keep seeing these charts and maps of, you know, it's kind of comparative rates of spread within countries and how many positive cases there are and Mm -hmm. what the death rate within those positive cases are. And there's such a wide variation. And here in the US, we are not taking it as seriously. The federal government is not moving fast enough. And, you know, Trump is sending a lot of mixed messages, basically, about this level of seriousness. And one of the weird things about this whole experience on a global level is time is sort of disrupted. Like we're all experiencing the same thing, but it, on different timelines. Yeah. Um, yeah. So today we're going to call Rachel Donadio, who's an, a writer for the Atlantic based in Paris to talk about what the future is like. Hey, can you hear me? Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. All things, you know, aside from the you know, global pandemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Aside from that, how are you? Aside from that, totally fine. Hey, Rachel. I haven't said hi yet. Nice to nice to talk to you. Never know when to say hi on these group calls. <laughs> Can you tell us where you are? Sure. You're in I'm, Paris. Yeah, I'm at home in Paris, and I'm here in my apartment, and glad to have an unobstructed view of the sky, which kind of makes things a little bit nicer, considering. We're not really allowed to leave home. Yeah. So when did that, when, well, I kind of want to back up actually. Sure. Back because up. Because it seems like people in Europe certainly realized this was real before people in the U.S. did. And I kind of want to back up to talk about when you first got a sense that this was going to be a problem. Sure. Well, I you know, read and speak Italian and live for many years in Italy. And even though I live in Paris, I follow the news from Italy extremely closely. And I was in Italy in January and then in early February when they 
had first treated a couple people and identified the virus at a hospital in Rome. And those were the first few days of February. And I didn't fully understand how big this was going to be until later in February when different areas outside Milan and Lombardy, different towns were put on lockdown. And even then it kind of seemed like, oh, it's just something in this town or in that town and it seems to be under control because it really is hard to get your brain around this. But on March 6th, I was on Italian Twitter where I spend a lot of time and I saw this segment of a television program that's called Piazza Pulita, which means like clean piazza. And it's kind of a, it's a very authoritative program. And they had gotten into an ICU in the city of Cremona and they showed these doctors saying, you know, we did not expect dozens of people to be coming in and needing respirators were really stretched to capacity. And when you could see those images on the screen of people whose faces were blurred out on respirators, not Mm. all old people, also younger people, that's when I realized, oh, wow, this is really big. And that was Friday, the 6th of March. And on Saturday night, that's when the prime minister of Italy put these regions of northern Italy on lockdown. And that, I think, is when a lot of us kind of realized, oh, wow, this is huge. When did it start feeling like it was getting closer and closer to you in Paris? Like, when did it become obvious that it was not just going to be an Italy problem? There's a word in French called décalage. It sounds better in French, of course, because it's French, (laughs) which basically means a lag. It's like that lag between when something happens in one place and before it arrives in another place. So it's like the same word for jet lag, you know. And on Friday, March 6th, the same day that I saw that television program from Italy, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, went to the theater with his wife and said, we must support cultural institutions. So Mm -hmm. it was only in the days after that when I got the sense that it was coming to France. It it took about a week or or 10 days for France to catch up in terms of public perception, in terms of government action, and, you know, in terms of the exponential rise in the number of cases. Right. I'm curious, what is Paris like right now? Yeah. So as of last Tuesday, a week ago, um, Emmanuel Macron announced that everyone would be on kind of home confinement. You cannot leave your house unless it's an urgent reason. So food, medical, work, going to work if you can't work remotely and you need a special form. So I have to print out this form and write that, you know, I'm going out to do a little bit of exercise, which you can only do within one kilometer of your house once a day and alone. And that's a new rule that came into effect a few days ago. So every And you have to carry a piece of paper with you? Yeah, you have to swear on your honor that you're only leaving the house for you know, an urgent reason or to just get some some exercise. I mean, this is the state has mandated this. You can get fined if you are caught without this paper. So you go out on jogs and things, but you have to print out a piece of paper and sign it and carry it with you? Yeah. So before I leave the house, I sign and print this piece of paper that says either I'm going for exercise or for food, or sometimes I check off both of them. You can like check mark them. And I haven't been stopped yet by police, but they have been stopping people and handing out fines. The atmosphere here is really quiet. It's not as quiet as 
Italy is from the reports I'm hearing from my friends there who they don't even leave the house anymore. But it's super quiet, like public transportation as of this week, massively, massively scaled back. I saw one bus go by today and no one was in it. I went out today to get some air. It was sunny and I walked by and saw, you know, the scaffolding on Notre Dame. Remember Notre Dame? So it's very quiet and ghostly here. And yeah. Um, it feels strange, but it doesn't feel creepy. It just feels very, very somber and quiet. Right. Now, can you tell me a little bit about what we know about what's happening in Spain now? I think what we know about what's happening in Spain is that the government was a slow, slow to act there, and they're now on, on lockdown and can't leave their houses. But there, you know, 3,400 people have died of this, and I was reading that they turned a skating rink in, in Madrid into kind of a makeshift morgue. Yeah, I feel like that will just end the American discussion about opening things up as soon as there's something like that in New York. And I would anticipate that there would be a, just a, a visual or, you know, something like that. I think the visual is really important. I mean, a few weeks ago, they were turning this conference center in Milan into an emergency hospital. The images that really struck a lot of people, I think a lot of journalists also, are the Ecco di Bergamo, the local newspaper in Bergamo outside Milan, and it's 10 pages of obits. And these obits are like an inch by an inch. They're small. And just that that's town has more than a thousand dead from this. I mean, mm. they called in the army to use army trucks to carry away the coffins and there's no more room in the local cemetery. And when you see images like that, whether that's in China or in Iran or in Bergamo or in Spain or certainly in New York, that will get your attention. But again, there is this like the lag, the decalage in until you see images that you can somehow connect to, people still think it's abstract. Right, right. Well, can I ask you, I, this is a question for both of you. I, you know, one of the things that's obviously being talked about is not only how different countries are handling the response, but then how that response manifests in different death rates. But I feel like given the widespread problems with testing, I don't really know what to make of charts like this. So here, here are some numbers. It says Italy, 9.5% of confirmed cases die. Iran, 7.8. Spain, 6.8. Britain, 5. France, 4.3. China, 4. United States, 1.3. Switzerland, South Korea, also 1.3. Germany, 0.4. Can you unpack what I'm supposed to take away from that? Yeah, I think um, there are lots of variables that go into that. But the main two right now are who is getting tested and how widely testing is being deployed and then what the healthcare system's capacity is. So early in in Wuhan, you you had a really high death rate um, because they were only testing and seeing super sick people. And then they started to get more testing out there and trying to identify, you know, grabbing people door to door and testing them just because they had a, a slight fever or um, sometimes no symptoms at all. And that clearly brings the death rate way down. And same in Italy when you're just kind of far past the point of going out and screening people and just taking super sick people in the hospital and can't even take all the, all of the extremely sick people. Um, they have a super high death rate. And, and that is where you have the possibility to do way better in the US. If, if you can give people care and try to prevent symptoms from escalating and try to get people isolated appropriately, that death rate can vary widely 
Is there anything you can tell us from a less data driven point of view about just like, what are we supposed to make of how differently different countries are handling this? So interesting, isn't it? I mean, I almost think like, you know, it's the same equation for every country. It's lives and livelihoods. It's how do you save and protect the lives of your citizens? And then how do you try to preserve some modicum of your economy, right? So, I mean, I'm just struck by in Italy, it's like, do everything to rescue grandma and grandpa. I mean, it's such a kind of family, family, you know, society. And um, other countries, I think, are a little bit more, you know, less, I don't know if it's emotion. I mean, here in France, Macron, President Macron is seen as this kind of imperious guy. And it's very, it's a delicate maneuver to put an entire Western democracy on lockdown. You know, it's like, what about our civil liberties? What about, you know, all kinds of other things? What do you mean you're going to extend emergency powers? What do you mean? And, and, And in other countries, you know, you have to check in with your temperature to an app that, you know, the data, obviously there are huge privacy and surveillance issues. But I I just think, you know, what I've been noticing here in France is just how can this government do this in a way that isn't like going to cause social unrest and a revolt among citizens who don't like this. I mean, it's so weird. I also just think personally, it's been interesting to watch like in Italy, seeing this coming and then being like, France, get your act together, go on lockdown sooner. And then just thinking like, what just happened to my head that in the last couple of weeks, I think like, oh yeah, I'm just waiting for some kind of massive crackdown measure that that'll get people in line. Like that was not at all how I kind of thought before this happened. So, Right, right. You know, we've been talking a lot about how other countries are ahead of us, you know, and in some sense they're living in the future. So Rachel, what do you, what, what's your message from the future to us? I think you need to know to take this seriously. And I really think it's a very, um, it's a gift to be able to have people speak to you from the future and tell you what they're seeing and that you should take this seriously. And I really think it's one of those moments when this is a life or death thing, you know, tell the people you love that you love them and make sure that they're looking out for themselves and taking care of themselves and really, really take this seriously. Like even before you can emotionally get your head around it, you just have to, it's better to overreact now than to, than to underreact. Right. I, I profess the only special knowledge I profess isn't even knowledge. It's just kind of, this is what I'm seeing and this is what's happening in other places in the world. And you have the ability to act now based on knowledge from, you know, not the not so distant future. Well, what is it like to watch home from afar right now? Yeah, it's painful to be perfectly honest. It's just really hard to, know that this is happening and coming and already here, you just can't see it. And to have this kind of insouciance or, oh, well, you know, eventually, I mean, the images of the kids on spring break just were very disheartening to me. And, you know, frankly, this is a very painful thing to watch, especially the way the government in the U.S. has handled this. I mean, I... I don't think any government has handled this 
terribly well. I mean, China lied about it and then mobilized in a massive authoritarian way. Europe was slow, but has been trying its best, I think, with the constraints of, you know, the healthcare system and also the Western liberal democracy. But to just be far away and knowing this is arriving in the States and hearing the president say things that aren't true and don't make sense, it's very painful to watch that. You know, I feel like as someone who's lived abroad for quite a long time, I think I always had this sense that America, my home country, my passport where I grew up, was a place that I could go back to and seek refuge in. And I'm more worried about how America is handling this, frankly, than I am about how, you know, many European countries are handling it. And that's a very hard thing to feel. You know, it's kind of the end of a lot of illusions. Yeah. Right. I've always thought Americans had a unique talent for denial. And I feel like we're seeing that. But you know right what, now. Catherine? Denial is not just a no. river in Egypt. Oh, my God. All right. That's how we know we're done. Um, okay. Thank you. Good to talk thank to you, you guys. Okay. Well. Keep in touch. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. Well, um, how about, uh, well, that was a good discussion. If you'd like to know more about the coronavirus, please um, visit theatlantic.com, subscribe, and uh, subscribe to this podcast, and um, you'll hear Catherine and I talking every day of the week. She's, she's gone to, to sleep now. Um, and write to us at socialdistance at theatlantic.com. We are really appreciating the feedback that we're getting, and we are going to take more questions and talk to people um, and it's helping us to decide what we should and shouldn't be talking about here and what's helpful and what's not. Jim, this is like... This is a real long outro, right? I thought you were asleep. <laughs> Can you just do it, please? I'm not good at this. You do it, Catherine. Okay, so the show is produced by Alvin Mellith and Kevin Townsend. You can write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com. We also have a phone number, 202-642-6487. And check out all of the rest of our writer's coverage on theatlantic.com. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Catherine. Bye. Bye.